Our second scripture lesson this morning comes out of the Old Testament book of Job. And I promise you, it is Job. It looks like Job. It's not Job. You'll get made fun of in seminary if you try to call it Job. The book of Job, we'll be looking at chapter 38, verses 1 through 18. I invite you to turn now there with me in your own text. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment? And thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and it is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray together this morning. Holy God, open our hearts and minds this morning that we might come to understand a bit more of the great mystery that is your love and grace, so that we might come to know a little bit more of the great compassion you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts on your words be good and pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So this is interesting. We're a little one-sided this morning. I'm going to, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just that time of the year, you know, people are getting in those last-minute vacations, so I'm going to try to include everybody, but here we are this morning. And I I wonder if if any of you looked in your bulletin this morning or saw the sign out front and saw that the title for the sermon this morning is, You Might Be Wrong, and thought either, I probably shouldn't go to church this morning because that sounds like it's going to be frustrating to hear, or maybe you looked at that and said, hmm, this might be interesting. I wonder if we'll need to kick our pastor out today. I hope to still be here by the time this sermon ends, but I bring this up because for too long now, and I really do mean too long, it seems like every time I get on social media, 
or read the news or take in any kind of outside input, I am constantly seeing someone either using God as their offensive line as they go on the attack, or seeing someone who is crying out for answers from a God who just doesn't make sense. See, curiously, we, as a human race, seem to be a people who are so arrogant to think that we either know God better than God knows God, or that God should behave the way we want God to behave. But the truth is, we may need to start considering that God is bigger than us and that we might be wrong. So this summer, I've been reflecting a lot on last year. And last summer, last summer I uh, did a, a curious internship. I worked at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. It's their tier one trauma hospital, one of the largest hospitals in the nation. And I worked as a, as a chaplain there. And believe it or not, my mission wasn't to go around telling everybody about Jesus. My purpose in being there was to sit with families, friends, and loved ones, and patients who are going, some of the, going through some of the darkest times that they would experience in their life. My purpose was to just sit with people in those hard places and be there for them. And in the midst of all of that, questions continued to arise. As I'd be sitting with a family who was slowly losing a loved one, or as I was sitting with a patient who couldn't make sense of their diagnosis, and we would ask questions like, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Where is God in all of this? Whenever I'm praying for healing, why am I not being healed? These really, quite frankly, reasonable questions, if you ask me, but they were real questions that people were dealing with on a daily basis, trying to figure out what does God look like in this scenario? Because the truth is, is that those are some of the times we need God the most. Those are some of the times we need a little reason and understanding, but I'll tell you the truth. During that entire summer, I never once got an answer. I never once realized why these certain things were happening this way and not another way, or why God would let these kind of things happen. Answers that did try to come up were some people would try to say, well, perhaps those people just didn't have enough faith. And I found that really hard to accept whenever I would be sitting there with 30-some-odd family and friends gathered around their loved one, praying so fervently the same prayer with, the, with all of the, the energy of their hearts, praying, God, please bring healing. And when it didn't happen, I couldn't just stand there and say, well, you all didn't have enough faith. You clearly didn't love God enough. Because I saw their faith, I did. And so the only other answer that I could come to, and it still isn't even good enough to me, but this is what we're talking about today, is that perhaps God may not think the same way I do. Perhaps God may, have, may be looking at the world in a way that I'm not used to. Perhaps God might just be a little bit bigger than I want God to be. I didn't understand God in these hard times. And so I turn to the book of Job, because the book of Job is, in fact, a, it, it's a book entirely written to answer this kind of question of, why does God let bad things happen to good people? 
This is it's the entire purpose of this book. If you read it from cover to cover, that's what they're wrestling with, the, the characters of the story. And funny enough, this, this part of the Bible, it doesn't sit with all the other narratives in, in Scripture. It doesn't sit with you know, First and Second Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. It doesn't sit with the prophets. It sits right next to Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. It, it sits in wisdom literature. Is, uh, is what uh, the Jewish tradition calls it, wisdom literature, because there is much wisdom to be gained from Job. So here's a little background story on Job, uh, one of the most curious entities in all of Scripture. Job is a wealthy man, very wealthy. In fact, in his day, his amount of wealth was almost unheard of except for by kings. At the same time, though, Job was a very righteous man. That's the, that's the expression they keep coming back to throughout the book. He's a very righteous man. He loves the Lord. He's very faithful to the Lord. And he's not even Jewish. He's not even of the Israelite clan. But he loves God. And he pursues God. So Job is this righteous, wealthy man. And that's kind of the introduction we get. And then all of a sudden in the story, there's a flash to what the author describes as the divine counsel. This imagery of what, what the throne room of God might look like. And God is sitting there boasting on Job. Have you seen my servant Job? Have you seen his righteousness? And then enters this character called the adversary. Now, some, some translations of scripture might say that it's Satan. Um, this is a misconstrued interpretation of the Hebrew hasatan, which just means the adversary. It's not like this demonic force enters, enters God's council and starts taunting God. It's the adversary walks up, and, and, and this is, for all intents and purposes, the devil's advocate. And the adversary says, well, look at him. He's got everything that he could ever want. He's one of the happiest men to walk the earth. He, it's no wonder he's so righteous. He has nothing to complain about. He's got, the, he's got the perfect life right in front of him. And so there's a back and forth between the adversary and God, in which eventually God comes to the point where, where the adversary is told, go and do whatever you need to do to Job. Take all of his possessions, kill his children, and inflict him with wounds that are too, too horrible to comprehend. And so it happens. Job experiences incredible loss. The only thing left in his life standing is his wife, who then comes up to Job and just says, curse God and die already, for there's nothing left for you to lose. God, uh, Job loses everything. And so he's left there thinking, why? Why is this happening? In this time, three of his friends, eventually four, but starting out, three of his friends come up and sit with him. They tear their clothes, pour ashes on their heads, as is the custom, and they just sit with him in mourning for seven days. Not talking, just sitting there, because what else can you do when somebody you love has lost everything? And after seven days, Job's friends start to speak up, and they try to rationalize out what's going on. Because surely if this much bad stuff has happened to a person, there must be a reason for it. They knew it 3,000 years ago. They knew that that's how the world works. That's how we still think today. If, if all this bad stuff is happening to somebody, there must be a reason for it. 
And so they start telling him, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have offended God. You must not be as righteous as you think you are. You must actually be a really horrible person and you just don't let anybody see it. And they go on for chapters and chapters trying to rationalize out why on earth all of this horrible stuff is happening to Job. And eventually a fourth friend comes along and, and gets mad at all the other three friends because they can't provide an answer. And then that friend can't provide an answer either. And so finally Job cries out begging God for an answer. Why is this happening? It's a question we can relate, I think we all can relate to at some point in our lives. Why is this happening? And God answers. One of the few times God actually answers, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced crying out why and God actually speaks to you very audibly and tells you why. I haven't had that experience personally. But God answers Job and says, not what you would think God would say. God could very easily say, well, I had a bet with this other divine being called the adversary and we wanted to see if you could really hold on to your, hold on to your sanity through all of this. That seems pretty cruel anyways, but God could have answered with that. But instead, God answers with our scripture above from Job 38. Where were you whenever I put the earth together? Where were you whenever all of these things were gathered together to create life? Where were you when the expanse of the universe was formed? Who do you think you are to question me, God, the one who assembled all of this, who put together the universe to a point that no human can even comprehend, and yet you are still sitting here asking, thinking that you know what's best for yourself, but I am the one who is God. In other words, God is asking, who are you to declare what God is or is not? That's Job in a nutshell. There's a professor at Duke Divinity School. Her name's Barbara Brown Taylor. She's probably one of the most brilliant women you could ever have the pleasure of reading or, or meeting. She's a very kind person. She's an Episcopal priest. And she wrote this book a number of years ago called An Altar in the World. And in it, she talks about, um, she talks about salvation. And part of her talk about salvation, she gives this quote. And I want you to listen carefully. She says... The problem is, many of the people in need of saving are in churches. Hold on now, I'm in church. You're in church. She's just saying, we're the ones who need saving. Well, no, we know what's going on. We're here for the big guy, right? Like, we, we got this figured out. Why do we need to be the ones who are in need of saving? She goes on, the problem is, many of the people in need of saving are in churches, and... At least part of what they are in need of saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. At least part of what we need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way we do. I'm going to let that sit there for a second. Because I need a drink. It's just water. People all across time have constantly tried to declare that God chooses their side over another. 
It's, it's an endless battle. In fact, most of the Old Testament is this whole back and forth between the Israelite community and the rest of the world and the Israelites trying to say, no, God is on our side. No, God is on our side. But the truth is, is that God has always been on the side of humanity. We read earlier in our, uh, in our New Testament reading from Romans 3, as Paul is trying to explain to people what salvation looks like. And he asks, is salvation just for Jews? Or is it for Gentiles also? And he comes down to, he says, it's for both. It's for all people. God has always been on the side of humanity, not the subgroups that we try to divide ourselves into. God has always been on the side of the human race, not these people not, and instead of those, or those people instead of these people, on all of our sides. In fact, one of the most laughable things to me is when people try to say that God is a Republican or a Democrat. And, and I, I, I see this a lot more frequently than I feel like I, I should, but people who say that God is either a Republican or a Democrat, or that any country or people are God's elect few, or that if you are a Christian, you will follow this leader instead of that leader. It's people who say that God follows a certain human ideology that makes me laugh, because I don't know where we got the idea that we are smarter than God, or that we even have the same level of intellect and rationality that God has. But that's something that we're very, very prone to do, to be able to say, well, God thinks this way, not this way. God is on my side, not that side. And it really has been, it really shows in, in political debates, and I don't understand why. But even more laughable than that, and also really truly heartbreaking, is when people try to use God or the church or scripture as a weapon to attack others, as a means to keep the poor poor, or to keep the stranger out, or to keep people away from love and to perpetuate hatred and exclusion. Friends, God has never been a God of hatred or exclusion. God has always been on the side of humanity. Let me tell you about the, how I had to learn this the hard way. So in seminary, uh, whenever, I went, whenever I went to seminary, I came from four years of undergraduate study as a religion major. And so going into seminary, I thought, I'm about to show this whole school what's up. I've been studying this for four years. I know the Bible back to front. I've gone through all the classes. I know what God's word says. I know what we're supposed to do. I'm about to teach my professors. That's the mindset I walked into seminary with. And you know what I found out quickly? This one phrase. You might be wrong. See, this is a kind of a running joke in seminary because people like me step up into seminary thinking they have it all figured out, thinking we know what's up, thinking we know right from wrong. And you get there, and people will tell you, subtly, they'll just tell you, you might be wrong. You just might be wrong. And what I love about this quote is that it's not, you are wrong. Okay, to say you are wrong immediately assumes some sort of superiority in saying, well, you're coming in here with these ideas and these thoughts and these notions, and that's just dumb. Get out of here. That's not, well, that's not what this quote is. That's not what this, this kind of running joke in seminary is. It's, 
you might be wrong. It's this notion that you might be wrong and I might be right. At the same time, I might be wrong and you might be right. At the same time, we both might be wrong and we're just trying to figure out this whole God thing together and God is okay with that. But you might be wrong. Don't just automatically assume that you are right. And this was, this, this was the hard lesson I had to learn throughout seminary because the truth is, God is a lot bigger than I think we give God credit for. And you might be wrong. What I'm trying to say in that, and what I think my peers and professors were trying to say to me as they told me you might be wrong, is that God does not think and act the way that we do or the way we think God should. What I'm trying to say is that our assumptions of God may not be the most accurate representation of God. What I'm trying to say is that our reading of Scripture might not be entirely true to what God is speaking to us. It might be, but also consider that it might not. Because what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything at all, is that God is not simple. God is not simple one bit. And we try to make God simple. We try to fit God in this little box that we can carry around in our pocket or a, little, or, or a book that we can carry around with us and, and, and quote things to people. But God is not simple. God never has been simple. And I'm not discrediting the Bible at all. I'm just saying God is bigger than our, what our imaginations are prepared to handle. So if I'm trying to say anything at all is that God is not simple. So... As you'll learn, I like to do. Let me make it simple. First and foremost, when we speak of God, we need to keep in mind two loaded characteristics. Love and grace. The love of God or the faithfulness of God to humanity is the most prominent message in the entire Bible. In all of Scripture, that's what the people are, are, are contending with. The love of God and the faithfulness of God to humanity. It's, it's written through, throughout every bit of the pages. In that same vein, grace and mercy are the continuous displays of that love when we do not deserve it. We read in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that nobody has hit the mark, that nobody is perfect. Yet, God gives grace, a free gift which we cannot deserve that we might be counted righteous. God's grace and mercy are the continuous displays of that love when we do not deserve it. And even still, these characteristics of God are still incapable of fully encapsulating who God is or even what God's love and grace may look like in the world. I've been, uh, I just finished a book recently called The Bible Tells Me So. The author is Peter Enns, who, uh, who's a scholar who's gone through uh, pretty crazy turmoil in his life. And, and he gets to the point where he's looking at the book of Job, and he sums up the book of Job in a single paraphrased quote from God. He says, I am God, shrouded in mystery, and you need to learn how to deal with that. And I'm thinking, that's really unfair. Because I want to know. I want to know God. And I think it's unfair that God would, would just simply leave this shroud of mystery. That God would be so hidden. 
And it's not, I don't think, that God is necessarily hidden or removed from us. But I think God is so much more than we can begin to comprehend that that mystery is the only way we could even begin to approach such an incomprehensible God. So let me put it another way, in a way that I can understand, and I hope some of you might be able to as well. I'm going to put this into some numbers in math and science. I'm, I'm a math and science kind of person. Don't ask me how I ended up in this field. It's a long story. The known universe is 13.7 billion years old and roughly 100 billion light years across. If those numbers are too arbitrary for you, let me put it another way. The known universe is roughly 587 sectillion miles across. To put it another way, if you were to just cruise at a nice 60 miles an hour, which you don't get to do around Mobile, but if you were to cruise at a nice 60 miles per hour, it would take you 1.1 quadrillion years to drive across the known universe. And it's still expanding. On the other end of this, we have subatomic particles, which are the fundamental components of the universe. On average, a subatomic, a subatomic particle is only one quadrillionth of an inch across. Nearly unobservable. One quadrillionth of an inch across, all the way to 587 sectillion miles across. Peter Renz, the author of the book I was just telling you about, puts it this way. That's what God laughing looks like. Because if you think about it, God didn't have to go so far as to have one quadrillionth of an inch all the way up to 587 sectillion miles across. God could have just stuck earth in this expanse of nothingness and put a couple people on there and that would have been fine and we wouldn't have known the difference. But God goes even further just because God can. God goes even further because God wants to begin to display how incomprehensible that God is. See, we have this incomprehensible universe, this, this amount that we can't even begin to fathom. And we confess an even more incomprehensible God. But here's the real kicker. This is the part that, that really matters, okay? That same incomprehensible God stepped down from glory and entered the human drama. That same incomprehensible God became human and in a very human-like fashion spread a message of love and grace by loving on all people and dying for all people. That's, that's our God. The God of one quadrillionth of an inch to 587 sectillion miles across is the same God who entered into our realm and says, you are worth it. You are enough. This sermon is not to give us a way out of the tough questions of God, like I wanted a way out whenever I sat with those people at Grady Memorial Hospital. I did want a way out. I wanted any kind of answer I could give people. But this sermon isn't that, not to give us any kind of answer that we could give others. It's simply my endeavor to convey that the incomprehensible God, full of an incomprehensible love and an incomprehensible grace, might just look at the world a little differently 
than we do. And instead of trying to change God to fit our worldview, it might be time we actually embrace God's worldview of love and grace. It might be time that we, can, that we take a step back and see the world a little more beautifully than we might be inclined to. So the question I want to leave you all with today is this, and I, I really enjoy leaving you with a question to take with you throughout the week. And so here's this question. What might the world look like if I saw the world through the lens of love instead of anger, through the lens of grace instead of condemnation? What might the world look like if we saw it through a lens of love and compassion rather than through anger and hostility, through grace and forgiveness rather than condemnation and exclusion? For who are we to be the world's judges? And who are we to claim that we know better than God? In the midst of all of the heartache and hurt that the world can bring, it might be time to start looking at it through a, through a lens of love rather than trying to shape God to fit the way we think God should. Because God is God, and we are not. And that's the best news I can give any day. Let us pray together. Holy God, forgive us of when we try to become gods ourselves. Forgive us whenever we try to declare that you are one way instead of another. Forgive us when we try to say that you are on one side and not another. For your love and grace know no bounds. Your universe is a declaration to that all on its own. Instead, grant us the opportunity to look at the world through love and compassion, through grace and forgiveness, that we might see a little bit more of what you see. Give us your eyes, O oh God. Give us your heart. And in that same vein, we lift up to you now, our brothers and sisters across the globe, as well as those right next door to us, we lift up to you those who are living in devastation and heartache, those living in war-torn areas or in areas struck by famine and water shortages, for those who are living in oppressive regimes, those who have nowhere to go and those who are fleeing for their lives out of fear, for those who are living under circumstances we could scarcely imagine. We lift them up to you in our prayers in this time bold enough as we are to pray these prayers through our, from our air-conditioned building. We pray also for our brothers and sisters right next door to us, even those sitting right next to us, recognizing that each and every one of us go through hardships, that each and every one of us suffer in some capacity, and that your heart is for those who suffer no matter the extent. We ask that you would tend to each and every one of us according to your good and perfect will, that we might be a people who enact your good and perfect will here on earth. We lift up all of these prayers in our endeavor to come to know you more, that we might, by a sheer amount of hope, 
pull back that shroud to look upon your face that we might know what incomprehensible love looks like and then that we might be incomprehensible love to the world. We pray each and every one of these things in your perfect and holy name as we pray together also that prayer which you taught your disciples to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.